No more staying in your own head about thought-provoking topics. Read along with a stress-free book club that fits into a busy lifestyle. From out of the pages to real life, explore the fine line between fiction and nonfiction as we pull from bestsellers that will change your life. Tune in to our bi-weekly book club of mind-bending and empowering stories hosted by Nova Lorraine, founder of Rain Magazine, and her two co-hosts, Toby Santagato and Barbara Donato. Welcome to season two of Tuesday's Book Club. I'm Nova Lorraine, and I'm here with my lovely co-hosts, Toby Santagato and Barbara Donato. Hi, ladies. Hello. Hi. So for our listeners that are joining us for the first time, as you will listen and learn through this show, Tuesday's Book Club is about us finding intriguing books that happen to be mind-bending or, and or controversial in one aspect or another, we're challenged to decide is this book fiction or nonfiction often throughout our reads. But the purpose of our book club is to help you on your personal journey of growth. Tuesday's book club is exclusively on the Pink Kangaroo Network. And at the end, you want to stick around where we talk about what happens next. So today's book is Memoirs of a Geisha by Arthur Golden. You want to get your notepads out, your smartphone, your notes section, whatever you can, write down the next three books because we'll be reading My Antonia by Willa Cather. Following that will be Girl Interrupted by Susanna Kaysen. And that will be followed by Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. So definitely get those books, ladies. Read up and Join us on each episode of Tuesday's Book Club. So as usual, we're going to go into the, a short description of the book by the publisher. Memoirs of a Geisha is a literary sensation and a runaway bestseller. This brilliant debut novel presents with seamless authenticity and exquisite lyricism the true confessions of one of Japan's most celebrated geisha. In Memoirs of a Geisha, we enter a world where appearances are paramount, where a girl's virginity is auctioned to the highest bidder, where women are trained to beguile the most powerful men, and where love is scorned as an illusion. It is a unique and triumphant work of fiction, at once romantic, erotic, suspenseful, and completely unforgettable. So that wraps up the summary of Memoirs of a Geisha. I would like to know what you ladies think. Was amazing. I loved it. I like didn't I wasn't like super excited to read it. And I have this weird thing about reading something that's also been a movie. I don't know why. It just feels even though I haven't even seen the movie, I'm like I just feel like I don't know. I don't want to do that, but oh, wow. It's amazing. Kept on going and going and I was like thrilled to be listening. I actually listened to it this time. It was just so good. And the uh god Good job, Barbara. I love the book. Thank you. Thank you. I just love that he's such a good storyteller. Like there, he was, I mean, through his book, you could close your eyes and like actually be in the book, be in every scene, every description that he talks about. It's just, just from like the smells and the sounds and, and even the colors, 
that he describes. You could close your eyes and see it. You know, the author did such a good job in doing that. I agree. I would say I was extremely impressed by the writing of memoirs. And I mean, the plot was intriguing and absolutely is an unforgettable story. And but from the very beginning, I was just into the character, I was into the scenery. As you said, Barbara, he's so descriptive in how he tells the story through the eyes of the geisha. And but as I was reading it, I realized that this is like he's trying to teach lessons throughout this book. And with all the metaphors and analogies and little drops of wisdom that he kept, you know, including in each chapter, I was getting more into it for, okay, well, what am I going to learn next from, from this chapter or this experience that the main character is going through? And I really loved it, not just for the richness of the writing, his writing style and the unique plot development throughout the book, because there were many, but then also the lessons that I felt that he was sharing with us throughout the story. I loved it. So I, what did you guys get out of the book? Because for me, I got out of it just the cultural changes from the time our uh, protagonist was a child, uh, the daughter of a fisherman. You can see just where she came from was very humble beginnings. The way they treated their, the females in the story in the beginning And then the dad, once he brought her over to the, and I'm going to say this crazy, I'm going to say Okira, where, and even there, like it was like a step up from being a fisherman's daughter, even though it was a hard life. And then from that point, once she became a geisha, she get, I mean, she gets to meet these super incredibly powerful, influential men. And then she's brought up into another class. And through that class, she's, it's just a cultural change from the time she was young all the way up through her to the end, actually, even when she, during the war, when she sees the Americans and their crass and she's forced to change. I mean, it was like, she's a, she's a chameleon changing with every group of years, she has to adapt and change to what is brought her way. What do you guys think of that? I think it's it's true, but the rules were so tightly defined. So as she changes, she changes, but it's still compared to how we have the ability to change in moment. We are, we're so lucky, you know, we can really change. We can be whatever we want to be. And her change is occurred, but in the constraints of that role in society's measurements of the way she should behave. And it was amazing that each person really did kind of stick to their roles. Yeah. They really didn't go outside their roles. And I would really hate that, actually. That would really make me crazy. So I think we're all blessed. And in a society where people are constantly talking about what's wrong and how, you know, things are terrible and we need to do better, you know, we also should be blessed and understand that we could still have most of what we want. Obviously, there's constraints, but not like then. That was awful. Yeah. I mean, and just for those that have not yet had a chance to read the book, the setting is in Japan. It opens up in a small town, a very poor fishing town and in the 1930s. So it opens up before World War II. And we take this journey throughout the war for experiencing the war through the eyes of our main character. And what I thought was really interesting 
it, the book opens up with present time in New York City, and you find out right away that Sayori Nita, who is the geisha and protagonist, the main character, was born Chiyo Sakamoto. So you're introduced to um, Sayori, and she's a woman. She's in her later years of life, telling her story, recounting her story to a professor. And they're recording the story. And she lives in the Waldorf Astoria and is entertaining celebrities, artists, politicians, you know, notable personalities. That's how the book opens up. And then you're introduced to this woman with this very glamorous life. And then she takes you, thrusts you into this <laughs> this world where she's a young girl, I believe she's seven, between seven and nine years old, and she extremely poor. She and her family are extremely poor to the point where if she wants to swim, she has to swim naked. They take a bath in a, I think an engine from a boat that was sawed off, and they fill that with water, hot water, when they need to take a bath. And I believe it's outside their home, which is called the Tipsy House, because it it leans to the side and looks like it's about to tip over. So immediately within the first few minutes of the, the book, you're like, well, how does she go from this little girl that's living in poverty in this small town to living in Waldorf Astoria, accounting her story? And so you're, you're glued right from the very beginning. So I just, I love that. And I'm a big lover of history. So I felt that the writer did an incredible job of literally putting us in Japan, in the small fishing village, in Kyoto, in Gion, and using his literary style to take us on this journey in a time period that's so different from our own. And so learning about the Japanese culture in such detail, from the, the mats on the floor, to the futons that they're, that they're sleeping on, to the foods that they're eating, and how it looks and how it potentially tastes, it was fascinating. So I felt that I was on a journey. I was off somewhere <laughs> every time I was reading the book and I had to come back to reality when I would put it down. So I agree with both of you regarding the, the, you know, the detail and how he was able to really enlighten us about another culture. But same with what Toby mentioned, it was also a struggle for me to put myself in her shoes going through life in this time period that was so restrictive in terms of their cultural traditions and how limited her choices seemed within that space of poverty and how she grew up, you know, pretty much as a slave initially and throughout her early adulthood. So that was a challenge and a struggle for me to go through that journey with the main character in that role as well. But absolutely love the historical and cultural component of this book. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed, like you said, Anova. It's just the way that the author was able to take truth from the geisha culture, the Japanese culture, and incorporate it into this book in such a way. Honestly, for a very long time, I thought that it was a nonfiction. <laughs> I thought that he actually, even though that they're just the background of the book, that he did speak with someone and he did pull out people from her life story incorporated in the book. It really did seem like it was just everything was true and real. You know what I mean? It was just, 
you know, just the way that he wrote it in such detail, intricate detail, you know, how he described the way they slept, you know, how he described the difference between how they put the, how they knotted their sash in the back and why they knotted their sash in the back the way that they did. When he talked about the tea ceremony, when he talked about bidding for her virginity, like he knew a lot of, of things that you would think that he would be someone that either was immersed in that culture or he like shadowed someone that was immersed in that culture for him to know so like the minute, the how the red was made. You know what I mean? It was just insane how awesomely detailed he was. But at the same time, like both of you touched upon, I couldn't handle the fact that these beautiful young women, their fates lied in what man was attracted to them and which, which like upper, I guess one of the higher level geishas would be their mentor. Their whole future relied on that. And I felt so bad for them. But I also liked the fact that ever they could control, they did. You know, in an unfortunate way, there was some light <laughs> in an unfortunate surrounding and where they were. It, it's, I like that they had some type of, well, I'm defiant. I, the young lady, her antagonist that was always trying to find a way to make her look bad. But then she, you know, she had that mentor that was always like one step ahead. You know, little things like that towards the end during the war, when she realized the only way, well, well, the only way in her mind that she can help the chairman and Nobu was through some of the choices that she made. Maybe not the best choices, you know, but the choices at the time were good for her. She didn't necessarily have to do it, but she made the choice to do it so that she could help someone else. You know, and in the long run, it kind of worked out, I guess you could say by her position in New York. What do you guys think? I think what he did that was really unique is even though things were kind of difficult for her, it never felt totally off in society. When she was at the Tipsy House, when we say she was poor, we need to understand she wasn't poor and everyone was wealthy. Everyone was in that same situation. So that's why I don't think it. she ever noticed that it was terrible, terrible, because it was normal. And even when she shifts, it's still normal. And so she doesn't really feel devastated by the fact that she's going her virginity is going to be sold. That's not what bothers her. The things that bother her are interesting and they cross society even now. I do believe we don't have we have so much more free will than than obviously she had then, but I think that one of the main things that happens that happens now and it's happened to me, it's happened to my children is bullying. And that's her true crisis for a good part of the story is she is being bullied by someone that's jealous of her. And the story is really, if we dig deeper, that crosses every society and how it's allowed. It's permitted to do it by the people that are the bosses, by the people that are in charge. And that's like a subtext of the story. That's kind of a good portion of the main part of the story. And I related to that. So as much as it's different, he was able to bring something that isn't different, that a lot of people experience into the story. That was interesting too. No, I agree with that. And that's a really good point about the bullying um, between Chio and Hatsumomo, her sister, quote unquote, in the, uh, in the Okia, in the house that they lived in. I also thought it was fascinating that within this restrictive or 
what we could say as restrictive world, you had very strong personalities, female personalities. And what Barbara said made me think of this just now. And each one of them in their own way showed their resilience within a very tragic situation and how they took something that started off potentially as a being at a place of despair because most of these girls orphans and so they didn't have true blood parents as their guardians and they started off as slaves within the houses which they were usually sold into if according to the story and if they proved themselves to be skilled and talented enough then and didn't run away <laughs> or attempt to run away then they could advance to be trained in the arts of uh, geisha of being a geisha and so just that motivation to change their lives was something that our characters, the variety of women that we got to know in the story, that they took advantage of. And not all of them were beautiful. I mean, according to uh, Sayuri, they all had unique features and based on how they carried themselves, they could be seen as beautiful in terms of their entire presence. But if she was just looking at their faces, she wouldn't say that they were beautiful. And there were some that were really interesting looking, like the the young lady in the beginning of the story, the first geisha she ever seen, which had buck teeth, I believe, like, you know, her two front teeth protruded and she had a really severe underbite. And she was in a town near the fishing town that she was born in. And those geishas there weren't as, I guess, elite as the geishas of Gion, where she grew up and where she was trained. So it was this whole illusion of art and beauty and romance and you know, that each girl were, and that grew into a woman was had to portray in order to advance in the ranks of being a geisha and surviving, really. Yeah, and I think she was, they kept bringing up that she was clever. People noticed that among her looks, what was interesting and intriguing and got her ahead, at least with some people, is they recognized that she was clever. And I mean, isn't that the same in society now? You know, when you meet somebody and they've just got that something you may, and it's not always intelligence. It's just quick or clever or interesting. And I think that's what drove, that's why she was bullied even more because she had that it factor and it scared people that didn't have it. And beauty is, you know, what's that saying? Beauty's only skin deep and it lasts for a bit, but you have to have more. And she had more. And I think that's what propelled her eventually is just, she had a smattering of everything that you needed to be successful. And she was clever. And even though she was bullied in the end, she was the victor. So yeah, I think that was part of it. And the, the author does a good job in helping us see that there's a lot of reasons why she became as successful and famous as she did. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they did put a lot of attention in someone being clever or being called you know, stupid or not intelligent, you know, whatever they were calling the girls. And you were either on one side or another. And if you weren't clever, then this was the only option in life for you, you know, and that's it. And if you're clever, then the world is your oyster, right? Like you could, within, again, the confines of where they were born, who they're born to, you know, all of that. But they really did separate the children they felt were clever or non-clever. And 
Another thing I thought was really interesting is that they associated, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. So she had what they said, a lot of water in her. She had the water element in her, a lot of it. And that worked in her favor as well compared to the sister who had a lot of wood in her is what they would describe it as. And so just knowing that she had this water element also played into her favor. Um, She had light gray blue eyes, which was very unique within their culture. And some took notice to it when she was younger, but the majority of people took notice to it as she grew into a teenager and then a woman. So I thought that was unique about the story that they would use certain personality traits and elements that they associated each person with that related to the earth as, as it would define their future success. I agree. I also think the big thing too was she had a support system. She had uh, Mameha, who was also described as very cunning. She was also uh, very influential in her life. Also, she, she had a little bit of power. She had the support of the chairman. She had the support of Nobu. All of these people helped propel her to where she currently was and her status. It also helped that she had these beautiful gray eyes, blue gray eyes that, you know, wasn't very normal at that time. And so they, you know, so a lot of people were intrigued by her and it sounded like luck, luck was also a driver for her. Like everything seemed to fall into place. You know, whenever there was something wrong, something else would fall into place um, for her that helped propel her to the next level. We find out towards the end that, that the chairman was, he was very important in the background of getting her the status that she got. Even at times when she thought it was Nobu, it was really the chairman that kind of guided her way. It also made me think of things like, why in the world, if he, loved her so much? Did he accept her to do so many different things? Like, why didn't she lose her virginity to him? Like there, was it like the, you know, it made me think of like, is that what the culture was about? Like they had to, they couldn't make their own choice. You know, they had to go to the highest bidder. They had to choose. I mean, it was just that ceremony alone. (laughs) What was it like for you ladies to read that part where That was so creepy. The doctor, like how he saved the specimens, the blood of each virgin that he took their virginity. He was such a meticulous, it's kind of like a serial killer, but not quite. When you see these movies and hear stories about serial killers and they're very persnickety and they have these steps and procedures and he wanted her only as a conquest, which actually ended up being fine for her because the virginity Unlike in, I guess, today's side, when I was growing up without getting vulgar, my dad would tell me every time I would leave the house to go with my boyfriend, there's nothing more important than virginity. I swear to God, I swear to God. So even in my generation, it was a big deal for them. They really made it as a non-issue. It was like something she just expected. It was not as big of a hiccup. But what was interesting is how gross the person that took it, the way he was gross. It was disturbing. Like, absolutely disgusting. He corked it. He corked it. But if you're talking about luck, she was kind of lucky because other than that, he kind of didn't bother with her that. I mean, you know, but he wasn't as aggressively needing her and being with her as some others would have been. So I think in a way, because of that, she had some freedom. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. I will have to say, as it related to the Mizwagi ritual of bidding for a young girl's virginity, I had a really hard time getting through that part of the book for many reasons. And it was, like you said, it was just so okay. Like everyone was on board from the mother of the house to the grandmother of the house to the older sisters to like everyone was involved from the dresser to the mistress of the tea house to the maids. And this was the big event that was going to define the success of your future. Like who was going to bid for your Mizwagi and, and you know, how much money you're going to make. And, but I will agree with you, Toby, if it was anyone for it to be the doctor as gross as he was in terms of like the conquest thing that he desired, he really left her alone. And it was very much a mechanical experience. So she was not traumatized or anything from it. It was like, okay, I don't know what to expect. And I loved how when they would describe something very adult to the apprentices, it was they used metaphors, they used nature, and they used animals. And if you were clever, you could figure it out, like what they meant. And I thought that was interesting. And so it made that section a little lighter <laughs> to get through, but ooh, yeah, I, I don't know. About that. What's interesting is what I was thinking about just now is forms of agreement. I went to a seminar a long time ago and we did like an advanced seminar and they were talking about forms of agreement. So all three of us know gymnastics well. All of our daughters have either done gymnastics or are doing as in uh, Nova's daughters at Rutgers, go Sage. And it's a form of agreement. If everybody thought falling off the beam three times was a good idea, then everybody would fall off three times. And so the reason why it wasn't a shattered idea, like you said, Nova, is it was a form of agreement in that society that it would go to the highest bidder, that she would lose her virginity, that it wasn't something special and that it wasn't emotionally special. It was more like if you got the highest bidder, then you made money for the Okia and then the Okia wanted to adopt you. But those were forms of agreements. And I, I think one thing that the author does really well is it creates norms that happen no matter when society exists, whether it's biblical time, turn of the century, right this minute, he talks about bullying. He talks about crushes. She had a crush that whole time. And the story is about her crush and forms of agreement. The entire time there's forms of of agreement. And we want to think that it's the past forms of agreement, but we don't have them in the present. We sure have them in the present, right? There's when a president's being elected, everybody should have a right to vote. But if the form of agreement in our society was that only white people at some point could vote, that would be a form of agreement. And it's interesting, that's how they live their lives, just like we do. And he keeps that constant. And I I think that's so interesting how the author does that. It's really, really interesting. He normalized things that to us would be grotesque. He tried, it's like he, I don't want to say he made it beautiful, but he made it acceptable. I guess you could, in the book, the first time I ever read the book, you know, I was much younger. So I romanticized everything. And I remember feeling like, oh, the chairman, like every time he, his presence was felt or in the book, I would like, my heart would pitter patter. Like everything else was like to the wayside. And then the second time, now that I have children, now that actually when my, my children were much younger, but now that I experienced life a little bit more reading this book and I'm like, 
oh, wait a minute. Like I, oh, like, like there were times that I just didn't, I felt weird. Like this is like that time with the bidding of the virginity before I was like, oh, wow, they're going to, if she gets the most money, this is going to be great for her. I'm so happy for her. And then now that I'm a lot older and I read it again, I'm like, this is really disgusting. It was just like, I'm going to have to eat glass through the rest of this chapter for me to be able to handle it. But then too, when you think about how in the book, her own, their own cultures begin to change throughout the book. The whole, the tea ceremonies were very important to them. They had to either have some type of talent to be able to showcase during these little dinners or these uh, events that they went to with these influential people. And then when the soldiers come in, all of that is, they don't have time for it. They don't care. There's a whole nother culture that comes in and she sees them as crass, kind of bullish, and they just don't have time for her. And she's like, what am I going to do? This is all I know. Like, how am I going to be able to be any sort of influence to help my people or to help myself and, and those are, that are important to me get out of these situations? And that's when you see the, for me, I felt like all that stuff that they did, all that she learned didn't matter at the end. I don't know what you think. Oh, that was interesting. I mean, touching back on your point about the Mizwagi and the, the ritual around her virginity. I mean, one thing that I learned after reading the book and, and like you know, both of you, I literally thought this was a real story because I, I like going into books with no expectations and I'm like, oh my gosh. But then I finished the book, did research and that ceremony does not exist in the true geisha traditions. And it's, it's associated with the Oran, I think it's O-I-R-A-N traditions, which are true sex workers, women who dress to look like geisha, seduce men for money. So, but just to clarify that, that's not what happened truly with geishas in real life. And, but going to your point about watching the deterioration or the evolution or modernization of their culture was interesting and challenging for me because the writer took us so deep into their traditions, into the tea ceremonies, into how they dress and the layers and layers of clothes that have to come on and off into how the garments are made, the dyes where she had to go to the river and pick these plants and get attacked by insects to then come back and create the dyes to make the garment when she, during that period of the war period. And then all of a sudden, boom, done. War's over. And all these traditions that we literally just were living through for so many years of uh, Sayuri's life were crushed or deteriorating or gone. And that was a little hard for me to adjust to that and to see how much the war hardened and or took away so many of the characters that we grew to know and follow them as they grew in the story in more current times that we're familiar with in New York City. And then also to see the contrast where the chairman describes New York as truly prosperous, that he's never seen prosperity where he thought he was living in prosperity in Japan in his heyday, but nothing could describe what he saw in New York City. And also things that we took for granted was also pointed out to us in the story as well. So there's so many roller coasters that the author took us through and I felt each chapter was like a mini movie where you would, you'd ride the roller coaster 
of the beat sheet. And then at the end, there was this cliffhanger where you had to go to the next. Like, how did it end? How does it end? How did she get out of this new situation? And so it was definitely a thrilling experience reading the book and a, a lot of conflict of emotion too. Yes, yes. Yeah. It reminded me though, because I think I'm just a little bit more of a fighter of like the book in our first season, Mutant Message Down Under. And I remember saying when we were, you know, doing our podcast, like it was just like, oh, I'll throw the jewelry in the thing and I won't argue. I just so like, as things happen in that story, they just happen and there wasn't a huge fight. I mean, the biggest fight she ever gave was she tried to run away. And and to me, like as things change, they just changed. She went and she, you know, she got to get saved by Nobu and and go work somewhere during World War II. And and she just did it, you know? And when she had to do something with the dye and her hands were yucky, she just did it. And I'm like, what? Oh, heck no. I'm going to argue. <laughs> yeah. right. I truly got frustrated with her towards the end of the book. I was hearing Nobu loud and clear with trying to shake her and say, listen, you always have a choice. You always have a choice. You always have a choice. Don't just succumb. Don't just give up. Don't just go along. You have a choice and you have a voice. And she would every single time, really? Well, no, I don't. You think more of me than you should. And I was getting so frustrated with her. In the beginning to middle of the story, I was like, okay, yeah, she doesn't have much of a choice. Like, look, she was sold off to slavery, blah, 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 blah. And then I was like, wait a minute. Yes, she does. And he did say something that stuck with me. One, he said, even a fish can choose the side of the river they swim on. And two, he said, every moment is an opportunity for us to advance our lives forward. Every moment. And here's a man who lost half of his face and arm in a bombing in the first war that he was in. And so he was glad to even have his life. And he said, with the little I have that society would want you know, in terms of someone moving up and being successful, I used to become one of the most successful businessmen in Japan. So here he is president of this prominent electric company with half of a face and one arm. So what is your excuse, Sayuri? So I was, that rang so loud and clear because I think so many of us just succumb to our circumstance, even in the bleakest circumstances. And we just, we just give up and we just la, 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 la. And He was that wake-up call, I feel, to the readers to say, listen, you have no excuse. If I could do what I did with as little that I had, why can't you do as much as you can with the circumstances that are dealt to you? And I think Sayuri finally figured that out towards the end, which I think is a great transition to talk about what, who was your favorite character in the story and why? And then we can go into the theme and then wrap it up with what happens next. Well, you know, one thing that just struck me is (laughs) what you just said is, wouldn't it be ironic if we realize that Nobu finally empowered her and that's what took her away from him because she got empowerment to then choose not to have him. He kept saying, you have a choice, you have a choice, but the choice ended up being, I think he might be one of my favorite characters just because he, I love loyalty and consistency. Um, That's just my thing he really stuck by her and he was consistently there for her. That's why I was so pissed when she screwed him over. And I get it, but I don't think I could have done that. She wasn't grossed out by him anymore. Like in the beginning, I would have gotten it more because it was hard to deal. But once you, it's kind of like once you see beauty, if there's nothing underneath it, there's nothing good either. Same thing with something that maybe physically is disturbing after learning and becoming his friend. I just, I don't care. I get it, but I don't think it was worth betraying him in the end. 
it bothered me. It really bothered me. But I loved his character. I think he might be, he's definitely one of my favorite in the book. She's not the biggest character, but she was my favorite because she chose her own life and her own path. Sayuri's older sister, Satsu, she was forced into going into prostitution. She wasn't as pretty as Sayuri was, but Sayuri learned later on that she ran away. And she went to, she didn't know much after she ran away. She went back to her village, went to her boyfriend, and that to me took strength. And she decided, you know what? This is not the life I want. I'm going to choose my own life. So even though she, again, she wasn't that big in the novel, but that choice that she made really struck with me. So you're saying Satsu, her older sister, was your favorite character? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I really, really, no one had a choice, a true choice. And she decided, I'm going to do this. I'm leaving this. I'm not doing this. Yeah, I mean, she planned and plotted and waited months so she could at least tell her sister. Yep. And she had to, whatever, run away in the middle of the night and, and yeah, to make it all the way back home. And she saved all that she can't, she could save to make that trip. And she was young, right? She was about mm-hmm, very young, time, I think, at the time. So, wow, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, because she didn't have a big role, but yet Sayori mentioned her all the way through the end of the book. Like she, Satsu lived in the story throughout, even though her physical presence was not in the story. Her strength was. Yeah. That's so interesting. I was a little annoyed that she didn't find her. They never really circled back to her. They did a little bit, but not, not in the end. And I thought that I wanted that to come full circle. And I think it's good that it didn't because I did think that the end did have sort of a pseudo-happy ending and it could be considered like a little bit lame. They didn't bring back the sister. Maybe that was good because it wasn't so predictable and happy endings, but I also was like, they never brought her up. When you go to New York, why are you not then looking for her? Mm. Well, you know what? It's fascinating that you chose Nobu as a character because yes, in the beginning when we would, when the, I think they described him over and over and again, (laughs) throughout the story to drive home how horrific his physical appearance was. But I agree with you. He wasn't really into the geisha thing. He didn't have time for nonsense. He was honest. He was crass and and kind of rude. But he, what you saw was what you got. And he, because I think he came face to face with death, he had no time for nonsense. He had no time for the little things that people would see was such a big deal. And He didn't like drinking. He didn't want to get drunk. He didn't want to waste his time talking to someone who didn't stimulate him intellectually. He just didn't have time for it. And he was extremely brilliant, according to the chancellor. So I I love the fact that you chose Nobu. When I'm thinking about the story, I would say in the beginning, it was probably Sayuri because of her resilience and the ability for her to survive in such tough circumstances. I mean, she was a baby girl, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, and having the courage to find her sister in that horrible district, the prostitution district, to coming up with the idea to climb the roof to try to escape. And you could see the failed escape really deflated her. But then as she matured, I was hoping for a bigger arc in her mindset and to do more of what she could have done with the position that she gained. And so I, towards the end, and especially with the reveal that we learned with the chancellor, he became my favorite character 
And the reason why was that he took a moment to notice her and to notice that she was in a desperate situation and had no one to turn to. I think she was 10 at the time. And even though the beautiful geisha that he was with was telling him, oh, don't waste your time as a little peasant girl. Let's go. He took time to not only speak to her, but give her money, enough money where she could have chosen to run away with the money that he gave her and something to remember him by, which was his handkerchief, which I felt was the sign of hope. Like there is more to life than what you're just seeing right now. And so for him to recognize that, I absolutely loved his kindness. And the end showed how much he sacrificed for friendship and for honor within their tradition, where as much as he wanted to be with Sayori, he really valued the sacrifice that Nobu made to him as a colleague, as a president of his company, and as a friend. And he was not going to betray his friendship with Nobu. And then lastly, for him to be savvy enough to recognize that same state of de- desperation that she was in when he caught her with the minister, literally caught her with the minister. And he, at that moment, saw she was that little girl again in such a desperate state that she would allow herself to be with such a crude man, the minister. And he used that intuition to move her, to change her fate, to reveal what he saw to Nobu. And when he realized that Nobu truly wasn't destined to be with her based on his reaction, he then decided to take the next step and be with her. So I don't know. I feel like it definitely switched for me. She started to annoy me towards the end because like I said, her dialogue and how she saw herself wasn't changing radically enough for me with all the knowledge that she had gained over the years. And the chancellor being sort of that really the most tender part of her life, that star for her, that lighthouse for her. And then the reveal, you know, sort of hit it home like, wow, he was there all along and he was paying attention all along. And he was that critical piece to help her get out of the situation that she was in, both at 10 years old and allowing her to be trained by one of the most prominent geishas. Well, she had, that's that whole free will, fate or luck, as Barbara calls it, is that she actually had two men that were into her because Nobu saves her as well. And so does the chairman. So she has really intrigued two men for a lifetime. They were there. One was in secret, right? Because she didn't know the chairman was interested in her and, and, and just not acting on it. But she knew Nobu was and he protected her. So she was very, very lucky. I personally did not like the fact that she didn't then give in to Nobu. And maybe she would have had the, the biggest love affair. I mean, she had somebody that loved her so much and protected her. And she took a crush and, and she ended up sticking by the crush, which, I mean, it, it did work out in the book, but did it? It wasn't an exciting life. It, it was just, like you said, a, you know, she went to New York, but it was the same. She even strived to have the same, opening a little kind of an Okia of her own and a little tea house. Like she didn't really ever want to get out of her own way of life. And I, I did stop liking her at that point, but I did, there was one point where I remember we were talking about it actually before we started recording today about, cause I love the, what happened next. And I was like, did they have a son together? And you guys were, yes, they did. And I was, cause it was so briefly mentioned. It's almost like, is there going to be a, a sequel? <laughs> What happens to the son of, of this love affair? Yeah. But I don't, I think in the end, I didn't like her that much, but that's just me. I really did have a hard time with her decision to betray Nobu. 
And again, you know, hats off to the writer for allowing us to fall in love with somebody who was rude and mean most of the time with everything that he said. And of course, physically, they didn't describe him as anything desirable and or his personality really, you know, based on his dialogue, but his character was so strong. And I was like, girl, he saved you from the war. He did this, he did that. And I had a really tough time reading through that section and her decision. But going back to your point about fate and destiny and what Barbara mentioned earlier regarding Soto, her older sister, she finally made a choice to change her destiny. As much as I may have disagreed with how she decided to do it. (laughs) Right, right. And what she had to go through emotionally to do it, she did it. And it made me stop and think and reflect on my own life. Like, what were the hard things that I had to do and endure just to make the current circumstances better? Like, there has to be something more. There has to be something great. Like, whatever it is that we're hoping for or striving for, you know, how many times do we tumble to the rocks in hopes of right before getting to the bottom, the wave is going to come and and cradle you? And so... I don't know. I mean, like I said, I was just more disappointed with her growth, but I I definitely can't say I was mad that she'd decided to do something and act. I just necessarily like the choice she made. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just that's where she did it. I think that sometimes I say to myself, and it's we'd need a whole nother episode, why do I always pick the harder path? It's like I pick these weird things to go after. I think I guess I like the challenge. So that's also why I couldn't relate to her. There's many things that I've done in my life from, you know, like small things like creating a toy lending library in, in the town of celebration that I lived in that everyone said they would never work and so many things. And I'm like, well, now I'm really going to do it. And she did just the opposite of that. And I think that's why it, it grinded me because I, I don't want to do what's easy. I want to do what I'm passionate about. And so I just didn't, I didn't get her at all. I don't know if that was easy though. I don't say, I would disagree. I don't think that decision was easy or the experience was easy. Oh, not the experience to betray Nobu. I think that was really difficult for her, but in general. Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In general, her decisions were just like, eh. I think her view of Nobu, I think it influenced the decision to betray him because I think she was very surface. Like when it came to, I think she was shallow, you know, surface, Barbara, shallow. I just, I think that even though in his core, he loved her, I think he was a good man. I just think life, caused him to be so gruff and rough around the edges and his flight in life. You know, he wasn't obviously the, not the most attractive man. The book tells us that over and over again. And I think what she saw in him was the surface. She saw a not attractive man, no matter what he did for her, she was appreciative, but she was always turned off. I think her decision to betray him, I think was like, I think had he been the chairman, I don't necessarily think she would have done that. Well, going back to your point about the shallowness, I would agree. But I think what turned her off for me was not necessarily his looks. I think it was the fact that she kept saying, he doesn't really know me. You're right. You're right. And maybe she was shallow. I do. Yeah, that part I agree with. She, there was something else there. She definitely felt not connected to him. I just, I guess the favors to me, just, I don't know, maybe I would hate it the other way too. There was no right answer for her. Well, at the end, I thought was really beautiful when she described that last scene with the chairman before he passed. And that really described their 
bond and their passion for each other Mm -hmm. and how much he gave to her or how much she, you know, she took from him, how much he took from her. And it was this, this beautiful balance. And even till his old age where he was very frail at that point, because there were what, 30 year difference <laughs> between the two of them. That made me feel better that there was such a strong love between them. And yeah, maybe she was a shallow person, maybe losing, even though she really, truly longed to be friends with Nobu for her, it was about having that dream come true, having that, the passion in her life, because all her life, let's not forget up until she was almost 30 years old. She had these ridiculous men <laughs> just after her for her persona or her mazwagi or whatever it was. So she never really experienced love and intimacy in that way. Even though Nobu was very protective, it wasn't an intimate relationship. Like whenever they would speak, it was like this back and forth, back and forth, bantering back and forth. Yeah. And she kind of was waiting for him to embrace her like a few of the times. So maybe that was it. Like he wouldn't. I think she wouldn't have been disgusted. He would not do it. He remember, oh, I thought he'd give me a hug goodbye, or he just never did that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He never reached. Maybe it was just maybe his own issues, his own issues with himself kept him from that being that vulnerable. And I think maybe had he been vulnerable with her, maybe she might have been able to see him in a different light. Maybe, maybe. I mean, the chairman was her prince, though. Like he, she always had that view of him as her knight in shining armor, too. So. One thing that I really love, because as I've gotten older, I have lost some friends and some family members. And I love the idea of the fact that even when they're gone, they're there because they're there in your mind of the of your life with. And it, it is a very tranquil thought. And even when someone's not passed away, I, last night I had a dream about a friend I haven't seen in forever. She was like my best friend in college. Her name's Lauren. Lauren Stone. And I honestly had, I was like, I was there and we had so much fun. And then in my dream, we ended up seeing each other and we caught up. So even when you don't see people, they're there. That's why they say friendship is like, there's no distance between friendship. And so the way they describe, the way the author described her peacefulness and the death of knowing the person was still in there in her brain was lovely. I love that. It was good. I agree. And I know, I know we're, we're running close to the end, but I just want to touch on, before we talk about what happened next, Mameha, powerful character. Don't want to overlook her. The older sister who trained Sayuri, and she was so strategic, so strategic. And talk about clever. So I want to just get your viewpoint of Mameha before we go into what happens next. Well, I think it would have been really, I lost a little bit of the cleverness in that I I learned that the chairman put her up to all of that. It still was wonderful. She could have done a lesser job, but I was like, oh man, there was a little bit more of a impetus um, besides getting back and rescuing. But I still thought she was amazing and uh, a, quite a character. And I think, didn't they say, did she ever come to New York and visit her? I can't remember that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And that was so neat. Full circle for sure. Yeah, she did. She did. Oh, she's my second favorite character. She was, if anybody could make the most of a tough situation, it was her. And she was always, to me, oh, I, yeah. yeah, I always felt that she was a step ahead of everything. She, she was like clever as a fox. Like, is that the statement? Yeah. Where it was right. just quiet, but always thinking. Gears were always grinding. How am I going to make the most of this situation, but in a good way? And I think that's why the chairman picked her 
to help Siri. I think that he saw how cunning she was. And I also believe that she not only did it for the chairman, but I think she genuinely liked Sayuri. And I think that's why she went above and beyond. She didn't have to do a lot of the things that she did. I agree. And also, I don't think she really liked the antagonist either. You know, <laughs> I think that motivated her to help Sayuri as well. Hatsumana, yeah. Yeah, Hatsumana. Yeah, I definitely think so. It was a little extra juice. Yeah. I mean, I think the chairman told her to look out for this girl, find her and become her older sister. But he wasn't the one who had the plot and scheme and pivot and change and come up with something new and something failed. So she still had to do the work to help Sayori become successful. And then ultimately was up to Sayori. And she said, this is as far as I can take you. The rest is up to you. But even when Hatsumomo, who, oh, wow, what a villain, huh? Even when Hatsumomo figured out every single (laughs) plan and was thwarting every single plan, she said, okay, well, you know what we'll do? We'll just pull back and retreat completely. And she had to do the opposite of what most apprentice geishas had to do in order to rise up. She literally took Sayuri off the scene and then had to dig deep to her most loyal contacts, which was Nobu and, and the chairman to be able to successfully move forward. So that wasn't her original plan, but it was sort of what she had to resort to with the doctor and the artist because the other things weren't working. So she was just so... She was resilient. Yeah, Yeah, she was resilient and clever. She definitely... And I think that's why they were a good match for each other because they were both clever, right? Yeah, I love the friendship between the two of them. Me too, me too. So to wrap it up, what do you guys think happened next? I think... uh... (laughs) That she went to New York with her son and because the cultural norms there and the class system, there's like nothing, no class system there really um, like there is in Japan. The son was able to take his father's name. The father had a, a division of his company in the States and the son took over that division and the son was accepted by the father's family. And he was able to be incredibly successful in the United States. She finally was able to uh, go back to Japan as well in her, as she grew older. And she wasn't a geisha anymore, but she was still accepted within that society, w- within the, the chairman's group with her son. And she lived a long life. That's funny because that's exactly what I think. That's we're like kindred spirit right now. I thought that something seriously something similar to that nature. It, it actually did have a good turnout. She was able to help break barriers down, and he was able to continue with them. and And they didn't ever lose their faith in you know being Japanese, but they they were more the modern society of that. And she carried that on. And I believe I read that there is still geisha there in a more modern form. So maybe that's part of it. They they helped modernize that and bring more respect to it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely believe, even though they were very vague about the fact that she, if she had a child or not, and I do believe that she did have a son and he did end up inheriting what was left to her from the chairman. And, but I also believe that she went back to her little village and sought to find the little house and begin the search for her sister. Because at the end of the day, the chairman was her love and it was her light and it was her, it was literally what helped her survive. 
I mean, it was, yeah. And that's why it was so important for her not to be with Nobu because that little light that she was holding on to through all the horrific circumstances she had to endure was the hope that one day somehow she would be with the chairman. And so to snuff that out, you know, it was like she wasn't living anymore. And I feel that with the chairman gone, she needed something else to sort of guide her. And I think that that longing to reconnect with her sister was that new light for her. Definitely. Definitely. A plus. <laughs> so this is a great book, Barbara. Yes. Thanks for the suggestion. I absolutely loved it. And it was hard not to cheat and talk to you guys in between. I know. It was, I know. <laughs> it was so, so, so good. For our listeners, go out and get Memoirs of a Geisha. Even if you saw the movie, I saw the movie when it came out many moons ago and loved it for its cinematography and all that. But the book is phenomenal. And I am so excited now because I get to go watch the movie again. So <laughs> the book is phenomenal. It's unforgettable as the publisher had shared. And are we going to tell them the next three books we're going to do? Oh, yes. Okay, we'll remind you guys. We are doing My Antonia by Willa Cather. So grab that. And then following that, we're going to do Girl Interrupted by Susanna Kaysen. And our third book on the list. I just wanted you to say this book again, just yeah, for just fun. Because I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got you, Toby. Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa. <laughs> Yogananda. So just type in Yogananda. Okay, guys. <laughs> that will help you find Autobiography of a Yogi. Those are our next three books. We are so thrilled you joined us for episode one, season two of Tuesday's Book Club. We really enjoy sharing these wonderful, provocative stories with you. They, each one that I read, I feel just pushes me further on my own personal journey of growth. And I love taking this journey with both of you guys. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, I guess that's a wrap. Until next time, guys. Bye. 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 <laughs>